Hello and welcome to the Alberta Advantage. My name is Kate Jacobson and today I am joined in studio by Team Advantage member Joel. Hello, hello. As well as Martin Lukacs, who is a Guardian contributor, left-wing journalist and activist. And once, two years ago, he did a presentation at a Parkland Institute conference and someone wrote a YouTube comment about him saying that Jewish socialists are the bane of Canadian society. So naturally, we are absolutely thrilled to have him on the podcast. Martin, welcome. How you doing? Thanks for reading that out. So we are here today because Martin has recently released a new book called The Trudeau Formula. So we are going to be talking a little bit about that text and about some of the interesting ideas in it and what exactly the Trudeau Formula is. So to start off with, if you had to explain the Trudeau Formula in two to three sentences, what are the key distilled elements of this Trudeau Formula? The Trudeau formula kind of distilled to its essence is talking a really terrific game about transforming society on behalf of the 99% while quietly assuring the 1% that things wouldn't fundamentally change. And, uh, you know, Trudeau is probably the crown jewel in this incarnation of the formula, which in many ways is a, a longstanding liberal formula. You know, he became in his kind of personality in uh, his posture, this embodiment of woke politics from the future, this kind of dazzling simulation of defiance against the status quo. Um, and, you know, a big part of the formula is how the liberal government is able to, you know, maintain electoral support while systematically walking back every single one of their progressive promises. So one of the things you talk about in the book is Trudeau's approach to Indigenous peoples in Canada and to this idea of reconciliation. And I'm interested in how, for lack of a better term, the reconciliation industry, which is this tour of apologies, always about historic wrongs and never about contemporary crises and ongoing colonization and sort of the watering down of these words like decolonization uh, was necessary to construct a new public consensus around Indigenous peoples in Canada and why this became an important political project of capital? Well, I mean, like the corporate class in this country are sitting on, you know, upwards of 600, according to their account, upwards of $600 billion of uh, resource projects, right? Forestry, uh, mining, oil and gas, Um almost all of them near or sitting on indigenous lands. Um, so the kind of resource push in this country um, has, if anything, intensified over the last few years. And there has been this real need to ensure that indigenous rights do not stand as an obstacle to that. Um, and under Harper, um, you know, his, his attempt to... Um, to manage that situation was just to act with this incredible belligerence, right? If anything, it provoked even more resistance, right? We saw Idle No More spring up under Harper's era. And um, I think Trudeau and his team had a, a very keen sense of the, the way that the Canadian population had actually been really moved by Idle No More. Like a lot of people in this country want to see a reset in relations with Indigenous peoples. They want to see Indigenous peoples... Uh, get the justice that is so long overdue. Um, they may not know what that looks like. They have some sense of that. Um, like there was a poll that I, I looked at which said that I think 75% of Canadians want reconciliation, 
but the same number of Canadians don't actually know what reconciliation is. So that left Canadians, I think, very susceptible to uh, the kind of manipulation we saw from the Trudeau government, which was, yes, this like you know elaborate spectacle of public contrition, you know, with Trudeau crying practically every month when delivering apologies. I mean, I think he was genuine about it, but um, uh, Audra Simpson, a Mohawk scholar, calls it called him the weeper, the weeper in chief. Um, and, uh, you know, he, his, his personality, his, um, his, you know, individual actions became this kind of like heartwarming reel, uh, that we Canadians watched that was supposed to embody kind of like the, um, that reset in, in the relationship. Um, you know, and I would talk to bureaucrats for the book. I talked to bureaucrats at the Department of Indian Affairs who, to my mind, are the first bureaucrats who ever used like casually, casually like word drop decolonization, right? Or nation to nation or, you know, genuine self-government. Um, people like Carolyn Bennett sound like they've gone through like a woke ally 101 class. Like she's like, you know, it's really important for us to like get out of the way of indigenous peoples. You know, we want to be there for you as allies, not as, you know, dominators. Um, so it's like they, they fully co-opted that language. And I mean, the Trudeau government, the Trudeau, Trudeau government and Liberal Party generally is very savvy at co-opting the language of our movements. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they did in this case is they've kind of taken the language of liberation and turned it into a kind of contraption of conquest. Because what we saw is basically the rebranding of the same old policies that Harper was pushing, uh, that the, indigenous, the Ministry of Indigenous Affairs has been pushing for really 130 years, um, rebranded as, um, as reconciliation. So... Um, I describe it as a kind of uh, a shape shift in this late stage of colonialism. It's not a sea change. Um, it's this recognition that um, there was no way really to manage um, settler colonialism in this country um, with the kind of belligerent approach that we had seen from um, from the Harper government. And so they had to make these kinds of symbolic concessions, uh, whether that was you know renaming institutions, you know in some cases calling for um, calling calling commissions. Fundamentally, when it came to control over territory and resources, you saw the same agenda being pursued, sometimes even more successfully uh, than under Harper. And that, I think, is what is so insi- insi- insidious about uh, liberal rule often, that they make progressives more complacent. Um, and I think on indigenous, on indigenous issues, they probably did better than on any other issue initially in manufacturing the consent, not just of indigenous peoples, but also um, of the broader Canadian population. Um, I think what what has helped unravel that um, is when Trudeau was forced by indigenous resistance to show his true hand. Um, and that generally is the, is the case with liberal governments, is that they prefer being kind of like, they take, they take the kind of reconciliatory approach um, but when they are managing or trying to deal with a crisis, which might include like, you know, indigenous communities blockading peacefully the construction of new pipelines, um, then they're forced to show their true hand and turn to, you know, brute authoritarian um, violence. Uh, and that, I think, in the, in the case of the Unistoten blockade in northwest BC is really what started to unravel that image because, you know, you saw photos circling around the world of, you know, Trudeau's, um, you know, indigenous loving government uh, dispatching 
you know, armed, highly armed police officers to, you know, bulldoze uh, uh, a peaceful blockade. Yeah, I think that ultimately is what has really unraveled that image. So as a kind of gag, uh, I'm going to read directly from one of Trudeau's 2008 speeches when he was kind of on a speeching a speech circuit. Uh, and I'd like you to tell me what you think it means. And I'm going to do my best Trudeau impression here. So we have a whole new set of challenges and we have to start thinking differently. Everything is connected. Everything we do and do not do affects the entire system. Humanity is going to have to break out of this pattern that has been the story of our lives, of our entire history. How do we do it? We do it by opening our eyes and opening our hearts to others, to difference, to diversity, to discovery. Yeah, so this is, I mean, this is true. To, you did it. First of all, great rendition. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I think people don't realize that to to talk like Trudeau, it like it's it's like it's not easy to talk like Trudeau. Like this this kind of like I call it art it's like artful vapidity, right? Like it <laughs> it doesn't come easily. Trudeau actually had to learn how to do it over many years on the kind of inspirational like corporate talking circuit, which is what he did um through his 30s and he was really handsomely remunerated. I think he was billed as a with speakers, uh, speakers Canada series, he was billed as like a inspiring, charismatic uh, advocate for youth and the environment. But it's kind of like vintage Trudeau, right? It's, it sounds kind of like a TED talk. Like you find it difficult to disagree with its big idea. Um, it 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 is post any kind of ideological commitment. It sounds idealistic, but there's literally no. Purpose, political purpose behind it. And it ultimately operates as a kind of blank slate onto which you can really project any of your desires um, of whatever political color they might be. And in many ways, like I think the Liberal Party, not just under Trudeau, but historically has has honed this, this technique, rhetorical technique of trying to appeal to everyone's tastes, right? Um, there's a great quote from... Uh, from Marx that I often cite, not Carl, but Groucho, which kind of embodies this um, this like communication style. Uh, Groucho's line is, uh, here are my principles. Oh, well, if you don't like them, I have others. You know, it's this kind of like chameleon, shape-shifting um, way of speaking. Milton Acorn, this great, amazing uh, East Coast working class poet, used to call them, he used to write lines in his poetry that he called Trudeau lines. It was for Pierre Elliott Trudeau, but it could easily be adapted to uh, to the younger uh, Trudeau. I mean, it's lines that mean nothing or everything, um, depending on who you are. You can read into them, you know, political Keynesian principles, uh, or you can read into them, you know, neoliberal market discipline, depending on the moment. Um and uh, I think it played especially well to the kind of like clickbait Instagram social media era in which many of his pronouncements were kind of treated like, you know, delivered by the, you know, in his, you know, with his like gorgeous tussled hair, um, delivered in a way where, you know, it was, you, you'd have to come across as just like a total hater to dislike them, right? Um, and of course, like, what ultimately, I think this worked really well in 2015 and in the first few years, but once I think he started racking up like clear policies by which to judge that kind of, you know, vapid rhetoric, it became much harder to pull it off. But in some ways, he, he's still, he, I mean, he's still trying, right? Like you can read this kind of, versi- I, you know, post-ideological versatility into some of his favorite stump lines, like when he talks, for instance, about how, you know, we can build pipelines 
and windmills. And in fact, like building pipelines is what we need to do in order to pay for the green transition, right? Like it's when you actually like, it, it, it comes across as vaguely progressive, makes some sense. But when you actually look at it, you're like, no, this is actually insane. Um, but as we've seen now with Trudeau in the last like, you know, six months, especially in this election, he's shifting to a very rhetorical, he's, he, they're taking a rhetorical shift. Like they're no longer playing to their, you know, kind of um, the vapid kind of ro- rosy progressive sheen. Now they're Now they're deferring to or defaulting to the other part of the liberal formula, which is once that progressive sheen unravels, we just start telling Canadians that we're at least better than the, the other conservative guys. alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what I what I found so interesting about that quote is that it's like it it appears to be some sort of grand theory of history, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, with lots of diversity in it, but absolutely no conflict. Uh, our theory of uh, history here at the Albert Advantage is that the history of all hitherto existing human society is the history of class struggles, uh, and it just uh, was a you know is quite different than Trudeau's version. So, um, yeah, that that avoiding conflict is really interesting. We also got that from Marx, but Carl, not Groucho. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating that in all his... So I, I put myself through the misery of reading his book, Common Ground. I don't know if you guys have had the chance to check that out. Just haven't had the chance to pick no. it up yet. Um, <laughs> but what's amazing in it, 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 it is, is that it is this, like, you can't pin him down on anything. It's utterly slippery, right? All struggle... Uh, disappears from it. And uh, actually, I initially concluded the book on uh, on a bit of a riff on one of the aspects of the book, but I've, I never talked about it, so I'd love to talk about it. it. He's got this section where I think it speaks to this, um, this way in which liberal rhetoric attempts, I think quite consciously, to disappear, struggle as the basis for all actual progressive and material change. Um, he has a section where he's talking about um, attending the 1995 uh, demonstration to keep Quebec in Canada, um, you know, which happened in Montreal, and about 100,000 people attended. Um, and he describes attending it, and then he says that this is the biggest political demonstration in Canadian history. Um, and of course he's wrong, because there have <laughs> been many others. There were more than 100,000 in the late 80s against, you know, for nuclear disarmament in Vancouver. There was more in, there were hundreds of thousands more during the the days of action against Mike Harris in Ontario. There was more in Montreal uh, against the war in Iraq. Um, and of course, like through the, through the 2012 Quebec student strike, on multiple occasions, there were hundreds of thousands of, hundred, hundreds of thousands of more people. But I found that highly revealing because um, I don't think it was just like a, uh, like a, uh, like I don't think it was a deliberate omission. I think it is reflective of a politician and of a person for whom that kind of mass progressive struggle um, is just simply not in the backdrop, right? Like for people who experience those marches, I mean, I, I was radicalized and politicized uh, as an 18-year-old marching for the first time during the anti-war uh, anti-Iraq war demonstrations. Um, for people who have been in those demonst- demonstrations, they understand that uh, the crucible of the struggle, whether it's class struggle or um, you know racial struggle or indigenous struggle, like that is the engine of all social change. But here we have a politician um, who has grown up, you know, as an adult in those years, um, not not seeing that right. Um, so I think in many ways that has made him perfect fodder for 
um, uh, a kind of post-ideological neoliberal politician who um, who kind of like, you know, brushes that key history under the rug. So your concluding chapter of this book outlines the quite strange sequence of events that involved the Leap Manifesto at the 2016 federal NDP convention in Edmonton. And this is going to allow us to do one of our favorite things here on the Alberta Advantage, which is bashing the Alberta NDP. And I was wondering if you could get into kind of the confusion that arose from this idea of keeping oil in the ground and what the response was from Rachel Notley's Alberta NDP, which had very recently come into a historic victory here in Alberta. Right. Well, I'm, I'm totally happy to indulge, um, indulge your, uh, your favorite hobby horse here. <laughs> um, the story of the leap within the NDP is, I think, a kind of untold story that I try to share in the last chapter of the book. Um, and I think it's a fascinating story in part because I think it shows uh, a pathway, a potential pathway that a left-wing movement in this country that is... Um, you know, attuned to and implicated in electoral efforts could take. Um, probably not under the name of the Leap Manifesto again, but it was interesting how, I mean, you mentioned the the controversy around keep, it in, keep oil in the ground. Like the, the strategy that a group of us employed to get the Leap Manifesto onto the debate floor um, in order to kind of serve as a flashpoint for what we thought was the hunger among the rank and file of the NDP and really broadly in Canada for an ambitious kind of left-wing turn in the party, a Bernie-esque, Jeremy Corbyn-esque turn, was to make the resolution that outlined the Leap Manifesto uh, palatable enough to the NDP establishment that they thought they might be able to use it as a kind of uh, fig leaf for um, for their preservation. And so it made its way into the convention. And what was interesting is that a few days before the convention opened, Mulcair kind of sat down with Peter Mansbridge for his, um, you know, like pre-convention. And I should say also that like the NDP in Alberta was... May, was kept apprised of all these developments, you know, and people like Brian Topp, I think, were um, not happy about the developments with the Leap Manifesto and its incursion into the party, but they realized that they, it'd probably be better not to try to suppress it entirely, that they would, you know, let the debate happen, and if it passed, like, they would do what the NDP mostly does with progressive resolutions, let them gather dust on a shelf, right? But I think they miscalculated in part because what happened in this interview with Peter Mansbridge and um, Thomas Mulcair is that Mansbridge asked him, like, if, you know, the party votes for the Leap Manifesto, will will you support one of its demands, which is keep oil on the ground? Um, and clearly, like, Mansbridge's producers hadn't read the manifesto um, because that demand is not in there. And in fact, it had been negotiated out through deliberations with Unifor, who was one of the original coalition members behind the Leap Manifesto. Um, and Thomas Mulcair clearly hadn't read the document either. In all of its, you know, for, we like, we slaved over trying to get it down from, from you know, 2,000 words to 1,400 so that people in this internet age would, would read it. But clearly, like, the NDP didn't read it. CBC producers didn't read it. And, you know, Mulcair was kind of, um, he had kind of, backed himself into a corner. He had no choice really but to say, yes, like, you know, if the membership goes for it, I will support it. And the next 
that night on CBC, the headline was something like, Thomas Mulcair pledges to keep all oil in the ground. Uh, and so basically the Alberta NDP government scrapped their kind of um, non-aggression pact that they had towards the leap. And the next day just like came out in full fury, sending, you know, Shannon Phillips to attack the leap manifesto as this, you know, irresponsible document. And, um, and it was basically a full kind of intellectual war at the, at the NDP convention, which the NDP hadn't had for a while, which was exciting. Like to be on that, to be, I mean, I'm someone who is, you know, critically sympathetic to the NDP's prospects and, you know, have, I worked a little bit for them when I was 20, like door knocked for Olivia Chow and, um, you know, in, in Toronto. But, um, but a lot of old timers said that it was like the first time that there actually seemed like there was some life at a convention. And uh, what was interesting is that ultimately the leap won. Uh, a majority of membership of the party voted in favor of the spirit of the leap manifesto and, and the resolutions promised that there would be, you know, uh, that they, the party would hold debates across the country. Um, what was interesting is that the elite in this country, like in the media and in the corporate uh, establishment, had this like epic meltdown. But a lot of the most ferocious attacks came not from them, but from like members of that kind of clique of consultants who have run the NDP for the last 20 years. Uh, people like uh, like uh, Robin Sears, um, people like Bill Tillman, um, you know, who lambasted the NDP as... Uh, uh, who lambasted the the Leap Manifesto as this recipe for electoral suicide, right? Um, like they, these people were so trapped in their kind of establishment Ottawa bubble that they'd completely lost touch where where lost touch with where people were at, right? Uh, mm-hmm. There was only a single poll done, and it showed that actually overwhelmingly people were uh, supportive of the Leap Manifesto's basic like demands, um, but for the NDP. I think it um, was such a drastic shift on the kind of politics that they had been practicing for 20 years. Um, and, you know, as you guys have described uh, uh, so smartly, uh, it's a non-politics, right? Like they had remade themselves uh, into a kind of light liberal party. And uh, I think what the Leap Manifesto represented was doing ideological politics again from the left, naming an enemy the establishment in this country, um, and um, and doing class politics. And I think that was so threatening to them, threatening to them ideologically, uh, because they had basically had their brains poisoned by neoliberalism over the last 20 years. But also, I think um, it threatened their control of the party. Because um, I think they knew that the energy that would, that I think could potentially uh, be summoned by elite coalition, elite manifesto style vision would mean that the party would inevitably have to democratize in a way that, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't let them maintain the perch that they had had for so long. And so you saw them, I think, aligning themselves with the broader establishment attacks on the leap manifesto. Yeah, having seen how stage managed a lot of NDP events are and how they're, you know, they're basically produced not for the people that attend, but for uh, for the media's take on them much later. They're bad theater. Uh, politics is um, 
you know, squeezed out of those moments uh, on purpose so that yeah. it doesn't cause a scene, right? So I can imagine, uh, you know, being there, uh, actually having politics play out on the floor would was like immensely destabilizing to everyone involved. Yeah, that's a big part of it. Like I think it the that transformation to turn conventions into these like choreographed affairs really happened under Jack Layton. Like, you know, you couldn't attend a convention without like seeing his huge face just like plastered everywhere. And the party really became leader centric in those years, you know, highly professionalized, fixated on ad- ads, on polling. And um, yeah, I think the, they, the, the people who run the NDP are far more attuned to um, the concerns and interests of the elite media than they are like their own base and certainly where the rest of the Canadians are. And so I think one of the big problems is that you saw that play out with the Leap Manifesto, like that they they were terrified of the kind of censure that they would get from the corporate media. Um, and uh, as we've seen across the world, like actually energizing left politics, you have to do the ex- exact opposite. You have to invite the wrath of that corporate media. Um, and I describe uh, I describe that phenomenon in the book as the beautiful backlash. When you invite those attacks, when those attacks happen, they always end up exposing just how out of touch the media are. They underline your anti-establishment bona fides, and they really energize like your base. Um, and we've seen how that's played out with AOC and with Bernie and with uh, Jeremy Corbyn. And there have been moments like that in Canada, too. But whenever they've happened, the NDP has tended to just stifle them. So I tell two stories. One is um, one is what happened with Adrian Dix, who was the leader of the BC NDP. In the election that he ran, he came out against the Kinder Morgan pipeline, um, basically doing a 180 uh, reversal. And he was just lambasted in the media as um, irresponsible, as ideological, as making a grievous strategic error. But in fact, like the next day after that, the BCNDP set a new record in fundraising, and there was a huge influx of volunteers. This is not to say that he, sh- of course, he shouldn't have flip flopped. He should have been opposed to the pipeline from the beginning. But in the aftermath of that election, when he lost, both the media's narrative as well as the NDP's establishment's narrative was that that had been what cost him the election. Um, mm-hmm. And we saw that too with Linda McQuaig, who ran in 2015 and unfortunately lost, but she had gone on CBC National, given an interview and said that some of the oil sands should be left in the ground, or scientists were saying that some of the oil sands should be left in the ground. In fact, all, most of the oil sands should be left in the ground, but she was just like um, lambasted again in the media. The same with the BC example. The next day, she set her own records for fundraising and for uh, an influx of volunteers. And like the, the NDP central office was on her back after that interview telling her that she had to quiet down, that she couldn't say those kinds of things. So they don't get that people in this country are already there politically, uh, well to the left of all the mainstream political parties. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are so terrified of the reflection, of their reflection in the in the corporate media that they are simply not able to politically seize that moment and that opportunity. Um, and it's terrifyingly depressing that they cannot see what's going on, even when it's literally in front of their eyes, like, um, you know, in the States and in the UK. Um, so, I mean, they they need to have their their heads jogged, like, politically. Yeah, like, right-wing backlash to your proposals totally functions as kind of this, like, badge of honor. 
And it makes you more credible and more authentic when it comes to how people perceive you in your politics. And there are so many great examples, like insurance companies in America going after Bernie Sanders and Bernie Sanders literally standing up and saying, I welcome their hatred. Like, why would you want insurance companies, one of the most evil groups of people in the world, to like you? Or, you know, John McDonnell outside of the gates of Davos saying these people should be afraid of us. They should hate us. Like, we are coming for them and their power and their prestige and their money. And that is... Like, that energizes me, you know, as someone who is on the left. And it also absolutely, like, energizes your base. And it reinforces the frame that politics is inherently about conflict. We're not all just going to sit in a circle and hold hands and resolve our differences. Some people are our enemies. And some people are in the way of the type of society we want to build. And those people should be named as such. Yeah, there's a great story I tell, too, in the book from... Jeremy Corbyn, like post the last the last election, he gives a speech at the UK convention where he describes how the day before the election, the Daily Mail, the right wing US and uh, British paper had published 10 pages back to back, just smearing him, fear mongering. And he was like, and the next day, you know, our support went up by 10%. So I have a piece of advice for the Daily Mail editor. Next election, could they please make it 20 pages? And of course, like the whole convention roars, they get it, it's funny, you're taking shots at like a craven elite that has been, you know, hoarding billions of dollars, you know, depleting, you know, the public treasury of money better spent on social programs. I mean, all that is operative here in Canada as well. I literally have an old pin from when I was like 15 that says hated by the Daily Mail. Like it was, it's been like a very big thing on the British left for a long time. And to kind of play into that is very clever. Martin, thank you so much for coming on the Alberta Advantage and talking with us about your new book, The Trudeau Formula. And if people want to know more about your work or find you online, where can they do that? I'm on Twitter infrequently at uh, Martin underscore Lukacs. That's a great idea, by the way, to be on Twitter infrequently. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's a really bad website. I agree. Yeah, that was great. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us here on Team Advantage. It was a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for having me, guys. 